everybody welcome to another episode of your intention matters the podcast thank you very much for joining us on this episode this is a rare one for me we have part two i'm thrilled to be here and i'm glad that you've joined us this one i have mark smith coming back mark welcome again man how are things for round two um geez i feel like i maybe i just talk too much and that's why you have to do a, a second segment but i'm quite honored to be back that is not the case at all. So we could dismiss <laughs> that uh, that story going on there at all. But no, I really enjoyed our first podcast. For those of you checking out this one that have not had a chance, it's episode number 200. It's playing everywhere, Apple, Spotify, et cetera, et cetera. Give it a listen. And Mark, I appreciate it, you know, because we were talking about the foundation of the podcast, Your Intention Matters, and it's really built on you know, the way I'm wired is nothing is given to any of us. It's all mindset and intention. And we really got into your story a little bit about how you thought you wanted to be a lawyer based on, on what you experienced as a child with your dad and had this vision for LA law and, you know, Harvey Specter. And then your dad kind mm -hmm. of tapped in and said, well, no, it's not really so much that son. I mean, it can be, but that's like a little snippet of it. And are you good at paperwork? Do you want to do this? And you're like anything, but yeah, and then you find you find sales, you find sales leadership, and so on. And where I thought I would start this episode is when we recorded the first one, even before I hit record, uh, first time you and I had actually met. The first thing out of your mouth to me was an apology, mm -hmm. and it was, "Hey, just so you know, Paul, I want to apologize. Um, you know, I, I my my voice is, is is giving me some problems." And you kind of shared your story about it, and I thought, well. That's just who you are right there. And I'd love to maybe start with that apology, maybe educate the audience on what it is that I'm even referring to. And we'll just kind of go from there. Sure. The, the, it, it's funny because, you know, I've, I've been told hundreds of times to not be worried about my voice. And, you know, I'm in my 40s and I, I've had a decent career, decent life. So I, I should probably be more confident than I am, but I'm just not. And, um, so I, when I was 16 years old, and I'll, I'll, I'll spare you the, the long story, but when I was 16 years old, uh, life couldn't, couldn't have been better. I mean, I, I think I mentioned in the first session, like I grew up, I hit the lottery when I was born, amazing parents, amazing family, neighborhood, public schools. Um, you know, I was, I was good at sports and had a de decent face and had a good mind. And there, there's really nothing, nothing in my life that wasn't kind of set up for whatever I wanted to do. And, um, and then around Christmas, it was actually Christmas of, of 1994, <laughs> I had been sick for a while. We chalked it up to, <clears throat> to mono or something like that, you know. But then on Christmas night, 1994, um, my lungs collapsed. And that started uh, uh, now, a, you know, almost 30-year saga. So they found th um, 18 tumors in my lungs, liver, kidney, up in my head my neck and i was given just a short time to live in fact they are they pretty quickly uh put in a pick line and to give me medicine and then a feeding tube and it was really just a can we do some palliative care but i did say that i wanted to 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 fight it and yeah. um i'm so blessed that that i had uh parents that were willing to um believe me and then also stick up for me because 
you know, my my father is a very um, powerful man, not not necessarily in the world's eyes, but like he, he wasn't a guy who didn't get his way. And um, but I think it was my mom and my mom's willingness to to look at the doctors and say, my son will do whatever you tell him to do. It doesn't matter. doesn't matter what. And so I just started um, surgery after surgery and um, <clears throat> uh, probably cumulatively, like probably 15 years of chemotherapy, whether daily or weekly. And um, it just, it changed, it changed everything. And then, and then with, with my voice, uh, about 10 years ago, I was mowing the lawn and I passed out and I didn't, it was a hot day. So I didn't think much of it. And then I, I went to go see my specialist, just my, you know, my disease specialist. And um, she said, you know, is, is your wife home? I said, yes. And she says, well, you need to call her because we're going to take you into surgery and she might need to say good, goodbye to you. My, my airway was essentially collapsed and had a couple millimeters to breathe through. And, and that started a series of, I've lost count, but it's um, 30 to 40 um, surgeries on my, my airway and my lungs. Uh, in addition to all the surgeries that I had, all the lung surgeries and bone marrow, all that kind of stuff that I had a while back. So every time they do a procedure, my vocal cords get damaged more and more. And I actually never know how I sound until I hear something back. But I, but I am self-conscious about it. And, and it's been something that, um, you know, I've had to deal with, but, um, I, but, but it's, it's, it's been fine. I mean, the, if I go back, you know, the, the, I think my life is better because of this illness and um, it changed a lot of things about my life. But I, but I think um, if I look back, I was, likely on a path to being a, a very um, egocentric, self-centered kind of person. Because again, I was born into this unbelievable like life lottery, but nothing really tells you that it's, it's not your own doing. You kind of like as a kid think that, you know, I must be special. Everyone tells me I'm special. I think this showed me that, you know, no one's special. Anybody can be hit by anything. And it forced me to learn new skills and and change my outlook on everything. And um, I mean, there just there just isn't anything in my life that hasn't been impacted by my health. And yet I've, I can't point to a single thing that in retrospect was negative about it. Just just painful, and but not not negative. You know, Mark, uh, I so appreciate you you being transparent with that. You know, I lost my stepfather to cancer about eight years ago. And he was he was originally diagnosed with cancer back in the late 90s. I think it was 98. And I remember my mom telling me about it. And, you know, when I first heard about it, you know, I equated cancer to death. It was just like it was like immediate. It was like, well, is he going to die tomorrow? Like there wasn't even this thought of, well, how do we fight this? It was just instant. You know, he's going to die from this thing. And I remember talking to him multiple times over the year, radiation, chemo, and so on. And before he really, you know, got bad towards the end of the last couple of years of his life, I remember years before that, I, I'd asked them, I said, you know, John, do you, do you think about your cancer? Uh, like after he technically had gone into remission, so to speak, mm -hmm. and even though he was doing, you know, treatments, the kind of things like he was on pills and things like that. But I said, like, are you conscious of the fact that you, you have cancer, like you're on a clock, so to speak, or, and I remember him telling me, he says, 
uh, he says, it's probably been two or three years now, Paul. He says, I don't, I, I don't think about it anymore. It's not really this, this elephant in my head anymore. And I'm just curious about for you, Mark, prior to the episode with your lawnmower, hmm. are, are you in that boat as well? Or, or is cancer kind of always top of mind and you're conscious of it? Or is it just, I'm living my life now and whatever happens next happens next. And, you know, when did you have that moment if you did? Well, um, the nature of my illness, and I was subsequent, subsequently diagnosed with a really rare condition called, it was called uh, Wegener's granulomatosis. It's now called poly, uh, granulomatosis, granulomatosis with polyangitis and subglottic stenosis. So it's, it's incurable. Um, and the way that it works on your body is to, it's to kill your healthy tissue. It, tumors form and then in your body, my body goes in and, and, um, and tries to kill the tumors itself and it kills everything else. So the nature of the illness, you can't escape the fact that you're in pain all the time, but and you can't escape the fact that you're taking pills or you're, I'm doing, you know, injections every four or five days that cause certain side effects, but uh, and I and I can't ignore the like. I, there's there's certain things that cannot be ignored. I mean, I'm really fortunate right now. I haven't had to use an oxygen machine in about a year and a half. Um, but you do. Sorry, I, I really don't. I, I don't want anyone listening to this to think that I have some prescription for how this can be easy. It's not easy. But right, I would tell anybody you do have decisions to make, and one of those decisions is to try to learn a different baseline for your life and to sort of judge how you feel based on that baseline. If you ask me, you know, how do I feel today? If I was honest with you, I would say, well, if I really think about it, I feel terrible. I feel, I felt terrible every day of my life for almost 30 years, but I don't think about that at all. It, it, it takes acute pain or acute issues that really get my mind on it. And then again, the nature of my illness is there. You know, my, my wife carries with her an emergency uh, tracheostomy kit and knows how to cut a hole in my throat if needed. My son has had to watch me, um, you know, be rushed to the, to the hospital. Um, that stuff you can't escape. But, mm. and the pain is always there, but, but you can change, you can change your mindset to, okay, I, I'm dealing with this, like what, what, how can I still have a full, meaningful life? And it helps to have purpose. I mean, um, I can't let my wife down and I'm sure as hell I'm not gonna let my son down. Um, you know, I don't wanna get emotional, but like I could, I could show yeah. you video, I could show you videos where I'm on the ground and I can, I can barely grasp a breath of air you know, my four-year-old son comes over and starts blowing into my, into my mouth, you know, giving some form of CPR. Like you can't let a kid like that down. And so you just figure out how to make it work. And um, there are times it's extremely hard, but again, if you have that purpose and that intention, I think, I think that's also, I mean, not to segue too early, but I think, this illness le led me into sort of my career path as well. Um, where 
I, I've never felt that much, like looking back, I've never felt that much enjoyment out of a, out of a personal victory. I've always felt great enjoyment out of team, team victories. And maybe it's the nature of the sports I played, but I remember when I started in my career, I would get every, you know, I would get, you know, every sale you make, I always tell people getting into sales, the beauty of sales is whether you make a $5 million sale or a $5 sale, when someone says yes, you get the same jolt of adrenaline. Yeah. And that's, it's like this, the great world's greatest dopamine hit, right? But I, whether it was in my athletic career or, or in my business career, I always found a lot more enjoyment out of um, helping organizations and people um, rather than myself. I mean, I don't even have a, I don't have very many personal goals. I, I have goals for my family, specifically for my wife and son, because I have to be prepared if I maybe leave them early. You know, I tell people, I, I, don't, I don't care if I'm ever rich, but I care if my son is. Um, I don't care about my retirement. I care about my wife's. Yeah. Um, I don't care about my personal success. I care about my friends. And that may sound like I'm trying to be Mr. You know, Dalai Lama, but it's, it's, it's just, it's just the truth. I, I would much rather pick up a phone and make a call on behalf of a friend than I would pick up a phone and make a call on behalf of myself. Um, and, and I think it's because when you deal with a really difficult health issue, and you realize that you don't really, none of us really get to claim a certain amount of time in life. You have to decide how you want to spend it. And um, the more that I'm focused on myself, the less happy I am. The more that I'm focused on others, the more excited I am. Which is a little bit odd because people who, people who don't see me from outside, they think I'm a really extroverted guy. Anybody who knows me closely knows that I'm like highly introverted and I try to keep to myself. Mm -hmm. But, but I get incredibly energized by helping people. It's, it's, it's what I live for. So in a way, I think it's probably very selfish because like I'm serving my own, you know, I, I, I'm really happy by helping others. So I think it, you know, serves myself. But you just, you know, if you find your purpose and your intention, there's, there's not much you can't cope with. Yeah. yeah, I mean, accomplish, cope with. There are other things like, you know, I'm well aware I have an unbelievably supportive wife and, and son, and I have brothers and sister that are phenomenal. And my mother is still with us and is amazing. And, and, and I've got so much going for me, but when it comes down to it, you know, if, if you, if you, if you need to accomplish something, especially on behalf of someone else, there's not that much that can get in the way. If you, if you really buckle down and, and go to work. You know, Mark, uh, prior to me, uh, you know, starting my, my company that I run now, I worked at Xerox for about a decade and I was in sales across the board. And when I decided to break the link between me and Xerox, I was, uh, I was living in Calgary, Alberta in Western Canada. And I was out there kind of as an expat working for Xerox at the time. And there was no real link to the city for me while I enjoyed it. When I was going on this new venture, I needed to uh, to move back home to Toronto to, to kind of launch. The commerce is also in Toronto, in Canada, and so on. Yeah. But when I made that decision, uh, I was on my own, like literally no relationship with anybody, uh, et cetera. So it was just me. 
And then about six months later, I met my wife. And then about a year later, we had our daughter. And then two years later, we had our son. And then I don't even remember life before them. But prior to COVID, if I think about even the last three years, my world was all uh, in-person training is what I was doing. We had offered on-demand, we had offered virtual, but nobody wanted it. It wasn't even yeah. like a second option, quite frankly. Yeah. And so that where, I, where I'm taking this is that I was very much 60, 70 flights a year into you know New York and Chicago and London. Like I was, just, I was all over the map. And and then when COVID hit, it kind of forced that away. And now my world is more more virtual. And and I know that you moved to Toronto. I don't know if you said it during the podcast or if it was before we hit record when I told you where I was based or not. But I remember you yeah. talking about Trinity Bellwoods in Toronto and so on. And so your decision to now stay uh, in Utah, kind of, it sounds like you have a, a great life where you are home based. It sounds like you kind of work when you want to work and you, you've, you've, you've created that life for yourself, but the decision to move to Toronto, did you move your, your family with you? Uh, were you kind of commuting back and forth and, and what was that like for you in terms of, you know, wanting to spend more time with them or was it just part of the decision to help others out you know, as part of the travel that you probably had to do, you know, to kind of build the life you've built up until this point? Well, it was, it was really counter to my personality. I, I grew up in the same, sort of like the same bedroom my entire life. My, my parents have been in the same house for 49 or 50 years. And mm. um, I'd been out of the country. My parents took us on vacations and whatnot, but um, I, I didn't ever think I was adventurous at all. And then um, a few years before Toronto, we had moved to Washington, D.C. And so I thought, OK, we can, you know, we know how to relocate. My wife grew up in uh, New Zealand and Saudi Arabia and um, a few other places. Oh, and so when Tor- everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. So when the when the Toronto opportunity came up, it, it seemed like a no brainer. Um, son, son was young and, um, you know, Toronto is like one of the greatest cities ever. But it, it wasn't without. Um, I mean, I had a like a full blown had to go to the doctor anxiety attack the, the day that I got there. And I'd never had one before. Um, and what happened was we were going from the airport, so Pearson airport into the city and I saw a hospital and it triggered this thing of what have I done? I'm an American mm. with this very serious disease. What am I and, 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 and nothing could convince me. Yeah, but you have like, we, we've, taking every precaution i've got american insurance i have a canadian supplement insurance i can get to buffalo like there's nothing really that to be afraid of and yet i had a full-blown like thought i was having a heart attack in the cab um i didn't know what was happening in the cab but when my wife and i my son was still back in utah my and my wife just came with me like on the first week and she was okay. gonna go back and but we went up i lived uh, i forget what the building but i lived on like the 45th floor of of a, of a building. And I honestly, when I got up there, I thought I was having vertigo and I just, anyways, I just kind of lost it, but, um, but it worked out great. I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't have enjoyed Toronto more. We stayed there for a year and um, all the way that came back to, to Utah because the company I was with, we, we wanted to start some operations in Utah and it made sense for us to be here, but we're actually not tied to Utah. I mean, we moved to Europe last year and um, I love, I love Utah. There's no reason to leave Utah, but honestly, we've just decided that we're willing to, we're willing to go anywhere that life takes us. And 
we're trying to be a little bit more stable for my son because he's 11 and wants to have a little yeah. more stabi- stability. But um, yeah, we're just sort of open to everything as long as we feel like we can, comp- you know, meet our family goals and um, and have an impact in, in some way. We'll, we'll go wherever wherever it takes us. You know, it's funny that you talk about stability. My wife and I were talking about this last night where we have our two kids. They're now nine and seven. And they're at that point where they're kind of established in their friendships. They're grade three and grade one. And even though you and I probably both know that the likelihood of them being friends with the people they're friends with today, 30, 40 years from now, is probably not very likely. But right now it's their whole world. Yeah. And having experienced uh, COVID in terms of remote schooling very early on in their schooling years, it's great for them to kind of acclimate into the community and and do this. And we were talking about this uh, last night because my wife, she likes to move. Uh, she's she's very much 18 months, two years, always like I want to move somewhere else. Not always necessarily I want to move to Dubai or anything else, but it's like, yeah. let's find another house and let's fix this one up and do something else. And she gets a little restless sometimes. And, and one of the things that we're quite conscious of is uh, trying not to disturb uh, our kids life too much uh, along the way because you know a move at this point in their life you know would be pretty significant for them when we moved where we are now they were like you know f- five and three so they didn't really know anything in terms of where they were before um but it's funny how you, you talked about you're quite conscious of wanting to make sure that uh that you're standing for your wife and your son. And I get it as a parent. It's like, my kids will want for nothing in their life. It doesn't mean they're not going to work. It doesn't mean that they're going to get everything they want. Even though I do struggle with walking out of Walmart without a toy, I still struggle yeah. with that. Yeah, but, we, all, uh, we all do. But you know what I mean? It's a, you know what I mean, It right? just means you're a good dad. Yeah, but if my, you know, if my kids want to take lessons, they're going to take lessons. And yep. it's, like it's, it's, it's not going to be because their old man can't make that happen. That's that's for sure, right? I yeah. can't even stomach that scenario. Um, and so you touched on your decision to move to Europe. That's a pretty big move. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I know the backdrop behind that, but um, how did that happen? So again, life was life was fine. Life was great, actually. We had an absolutely beautiful home. And uh, I'd put a tremendous amount of work into our gardens and our, you know, we, we loved our home and it was everything we needed. And I owned a ranch and um, several cars and my son went to a great school and we have lots of friends and it was nothing we needed to leave, but it just was itching at us that we wanted to just, while we could kind of see if there's a different way for us to live our lives and, and find similar happiness, but in a different way. And so we, we literally got rid of everything. We sold the house. We sold uh, almost all of our furniture to one person in another state and just shipped it to them. We, at one point, just opened up the house and told our friends to come and take everything that was left. Um, sold my ranch, sold my cars. You name it. It's all gone. And we went like to... Literally. Like just yeah. all liquid now at this point. All liquid. Yeah. I mean- yeah. We moved, our, we moved our grand piano to a friend's house. Uh, in the neighborhood because we didn't want to put it in, you know, cold storage or something. And then we ended up with an eight by eight storage unit that we put, you know, family pictures and, you know, things like that. And then we got on a plane and headed to Rome, Italy. And the the plan was to, to start in Rome for a few months and then find a place, find a city in Italy to buy a home and uh, make that our home base and then travel for a few years while putting my son either in remote school or private school. Um, And then 
it was really just to, to figure out whether a different type of life was something that we could do and we could find meaning. And it wasn't about like, we, we weren't feeling like we were some stuck up jerks that had to get rid of our big house and our cars. It was just, you know, when we lived in Toronto, it wasn't cheap. I mean, we lived in, I mean, we lived right at the, at the gates of Trinity Bellwoods above mm-hmm. uh, is a white scroll coffee or something like that. And this, this unbelievable town home in, in Queen West, it wasn't cheap, but it was like 500 square feet. And we just thought that was one of the happiest times in our lives. What if we can go do that for a few years before, before my son's in middle school or high school and we got to get him back to play, you know, American football, mm-hmm. American baseball. And then, so we did, and we, we really went and the first, the agenda was, you know, eat food and sleep in and, and, uh, and then adjust and figure out what to do. But then yeah. the war broke out and that sort of changed, sort of changed everything. So did you stay in Italy during the, the during your time in Europe? Because I know that you you talked about briefly in the last one that uh, you know you 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 put a real considered effort into the the support of of Ukraine you know during the during the war and still what's still going on of course, um, but did you stay in Italy? No. So um, we have really supportive families, but a few members of the family weren't super happy that we were heading to Europe when everyone knew that there's probably going to be a conflict in Ukraine. But yeah. we, we weren't super concerned. And then when the conflict started, naturally our families thought, okay, they're going to come back now. And, uh, you know, we instead got rid of our house in Rome, got a Mercedes sprinter van and headed east to the war. <laughs> so we ended up, uh, we ended up buying out a, a bed and breakfast in, uh, in a community outside of Bucharest, Romania, that sleeps about 45 people. And it's on about five acres of land. So uh, we have this amazing friend there who, he's our friend now, we never knew him, but we we contacted him and said, any chance he'd let us, you know, buy out your bed and breakfast for a while. And he, his name's Christian Pascu, and he's, he's just an angel. Um, he's, you know, he helped us get refugees to the home. And then we were able to get there a few weeks later. And um, we spent the next several months just every day transporting refugees or, you know, getting them food or, so we, we have a lot of families at that home that we take care of all their, um, food and supplies and transportation and, you know, anything they need. And then, and then, um, you know, they have friends that need help. So we've, we've helped relocate maybe, maybe about 400 people out of Ukraine into different, um, areas. And, and then my wife, by the way, like, We've had a tremendous amount of help from friends. Um, our first thing was, hey, why don't we find one family and help mm. them reloc- relocate? And um, and then when friends heard that we were heading out there, they said, well, if you guys are going to be the ones on the ground, like we'd like to help. And so we ended up raising a couple hundred thousand dollars. And so um, so all in, we've we've been able to spend, you know, I won't say the amount, but it's you know, it's, it's an amount that I, I probably have to go back to work at some point. Um, but back to intention and purpose, like, again, I, some people are going to hate me listening to this. They're going to think that I'm just the biggest blowhard. I just, I, I want you to understand, I, I'm not trying to come off as a, as a, you know, wonderful human, but I, um, I, I'm so, this has been the greatest experience of my life. And I've had a lot of great experiences in my life, but 
you you learn something about yourself and your family and the world when you're in a situation like this. I promised my family a European whirlwind vacation, and I promised my son fun. And, and instead, what I gave him was hanging out with um, Ukrainian who don't speak his language. Yeah. And I watched him be like absolutely blossom as a young man. He didn't care that he couldn't speak their language. They, they came up with their own language. Hmm. He, has, he has lifelong friends that he's never spoken a word to in English or Russian or Ukrainian, but they came up with their own words. And I promised my wife, you know, convertibles and Louis Vuittons and, you know, again, you know, a five-star European vacation. And again, she spent the last year uh, doing nothing but helping out these women and children. And she does stuff that I don't even know about. I mean, one, one day I heard we were sending five semi-trucks from Poland um, to the eastern part of Ukraine because my wife found a small village that was ravaged by Russian troops and didn't have any food or supplies. And so my wife just provided those. And so you, I, I tell you, it wasn't that, I mean, it was, it was nice and relaxing to take a walk every day with my dog to an ancient park in Rome, but it was never going to last. We, we were going we to have to find some purpose for that experience to, to mean anything. And I hate that it's at the expense of millions of people who have been being terrorized right now, but I mean, the only thing that I wish, Paul, is that I that I was that my family was back there right now. We had to leave for certain reasons. It's actually not that hard and not that easy legally to to stay for a long period of time. And and I won't get into it, but I was putting my, yeah. my family I was putting my family at risk with some of the high risk things that we were doing to help. My wife and I would have stayed forever, but it was it was not fair to my son to to risk mom and dad going to jail or. Um, cause you just cannot operate in Eastern Europe in a, in a war zone without putting yourself at risk. Yeah. But it was the greatest experience and, and, um, it's made me love my wife even more than I ever did. And it's made me see that my son can, can do anything. Um, and it's reminded me that, um, if, if you, if you stick to your purpose, you, you really don't have regrets, even when it changes everything. Like a year and a half ago, I, I had myself set up where I probably never had to work again. And I was going to become a high school teacher at some point and uh, just have a really nice retirement. Well, that's changed because I <laughs> gave away all my money. Yeah. Um, and I, and it, it, it has, it's been the easiest thing in the world. Like it's, it's so, so wild that I worked to be able to not work. And then within a matter of a year, I put myself in a situation and my wife and I have never been happier and we would do it again. And um, when I do make money, like it pretty much I make it with the purpose of like, we need to write another check and wire some money to another family. Um, it's just, it's just, I don't know. It's a life with purpose. And I don't care what your purpose is. I mean, I, I, I admire people that have you know, skills and hobbies that I don't have, you know, musicians and woodworkers. And mm -hmm. I, I don't care what your purpose is, but I've never, okay, I'll just briefly, I have, I have a friend, an old neighbor who showed up at my house the other day and the car that he bought 
he lost his father when he was 15 and he was on his own and he scraped together some money and bought some beater car. And he never got rid of that car. And if you looked at it, I mean, it's a junkyard car. It's probably worth a hundred bucks in scrap metal. But he showed up the other day and we went for a drive. He put nearly $50,000 into the motor to turn it into just this race car. And afterwards he said, you know, you probably think this is stupid. And I said, I, I don't think it's stupid. I think it's one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. Because, you know, I'm not going to be a billionaire. I'm not going to win a, a, a medal for valor. I'm not going to cure cancer. I'm not going to go to the moon. Most of us aren't. But part of having a fulfilling life is working hard so you have the freedom to do whatever you want because it matters to you and no one else has to think it's cool. I think the fact that he, he saved that car from that traumatizing time in his life and now he's turned it into a, something special for him. I think that is the exact type of thing that you can find purpose in life. It may sound frivolous to some people, but I can promise you if you hear his life story, this isn't frivolous. And I just, I, I want more people to understand that um, switching your life to accommodate your passion is, is easier than you might think it is. Your children are more resilient. Your marriage will probably go, grow stronger as long as you're on the same page. Mm. You will not take a hit in your career. And if you do, you'll realize it never mattered in the first place. Um, once you find something that you have passion at, and you, and you know you're good at, there's, you don't need to be motivated to do it. And you'll be surprised what you're willing to do for other people um, when, it, when it falls within that. You'll, some of the most sort of outwardly selfish people that I know, I've watched them in their lives, switch their lives to be the most outwardly generous, uh, least self-serving people I've ever seen. And, um, I just, it's, it's possible. I mean, for me, my life went on a different trajectory because of my health mm. and then I was able to make a good life out of it. And then it went on a different trajectory because I found out that I like helping refugees. Um, but just Mark, do you think you would have gone to the Ukraine if you were in Utah at the time or, or no, did no, it no. help you? No, no, no. So that's one thing I always tell people is, you know, some people say, Oh, you've done so much. And it's like, wait a second, you got to understand we were already there. I, I forget the mileage, but we were only a three-day drive from mm. the war. We had money. We uh, we had you know we had resources. We you know strong family and and um, it it just and, and we had we actually had connections that helped us meet people in Ukraine. Like everything kind of worked out, and it's just that it got much bigger. So I don't. I, I truly believe that. Uh, and, and, and we were already planning on being in Europe for a long period of time. It wasn't like, I mean, if I was there on vacation, even for two weeks, I wouldn't have gone to Ukraine, but we were already there. I mean, yeah. and I think most people in that situation would actually do it. I, um, it's not as hard as you, it's, it's, it's time consuming and it is emotionally draining, but because you're giving your emotions to people that are being ravaged. I mean, I thought I knew what PTSD was. I didn't know anything about PTSD until I'm sitting there just holding a, a mother who is shaking uncontrollably and can't speak, you know, until I'm, and then I look over there and my son is playing with kids that have no idea what's going on. And then I've got a mother over here yeah. that, 
you know, doesn't have diapers for a baby. Like everything happens and you realize, my gosh, like, but there's a solution to all. I can't solve the war. I can't take away their pain, but I can absolutely use my talents and my resources to act for people now. I was tell like, if, if, if I find out someday that you're going through a tough time, I will, I'm never going to text you and say, hey, Paul, like, what can I do for you? I'm going to call you and say, Paul, I need, I need an assignment. Well, I don't need anything. I don't care, Paul. I need an assignment. You have to tell me what to do. Yeah. I, I don't care what it is. Tell me what to do. I'm not getting off the phone until you do it. Because I'm like, you. here's what I'm good at. Tell me what to do. And it, it, it reminds me of, just, it's like every win you have as a, as a salesperson or a sales leader, every time you help somebody learn a skill they didn't know before, every time you help them get a promotion or buy their first house or, you know, sales leadership, like I can't, I can't think of a better career because of all this opportunity you have to help people in so many different ways. It's, you get this rush of, of adrenaline. It feeds your own purpose and your own happiness but like people don't understand i think sometimes how much talent they have to help other people and once you start doing it you realize nothing is more enjoyable and it doesn't have to be anything grandiose like just tell me to go dig a hole and i'll go dig a hole but give me Give me something to do. Um, let me serve you. If you won't let me serve you, tell me somebody in Ukraine that I can go and pick up. Um, whatever, whatever it is. But, and again, it doesn't have to be, you know, service. It doesn't have to be charity. It could be anything. Mm -hmm. But we, I just am so, I'm so blessed, like back to the health thing. I'm so blessed that my parents supported me in trying to stay alive. And I'm so blessed that and you, you talked earlier, you know, you, you did all these, this in-person training and then you couldn't. And so what do you do? You adjust when you have a massive health crisis or you have some sort of marital crisis or financial crisis, or you get really old and frail. Once you, can't do everything you lean into what you can do and if yeah. you're willing to if you're willing to find enjoyment in leaning into what you can do the stuff you can't do fades in the background and you don't miss it at all you just don't i can't do things physically uh i've never been able to do certain things physically for the last 20 something years i live in utah i can't go into the mountains without my oxygen tank um, again, I don't want to get emotional, but when I was a young father. Uh, I sat in this, uh, I'll, I'll give you kind of a juxtaposition. I, I finished a round of golf at my country club, you know, that I drove to in my Porsche and I met my beautiful wife and son at the country club pool. And then I couldn't throw my son up in the air. So I, you know, you go from this outwardly perfect life yeah. to this to this, I, I, I can't breathe well enough to throw my son in the air. So what did I find? I, I saw that one of my, one of my friends was there and he saw me struggling and he came over and he played with my son. As a father, you know how hard that is. 
but it's the, it's the most tremendous blessing in that moment to, to see a friend step in and help. Step in for sure. And, and then you start peeling it all away and you realize that what you really got out of that experience on the golf course is time with your family. You don't get anything really out of the car. If you can afford it, buy it. Great. But who cares if I drive a Porsche anymore? What I get out of this experience is time with my family. It doesn't even have to be a country club. It can be in Ukraine. It can be at the park. Um, I don't have to be physically perfect because I have friends and they can help me. My son doesn't need me to be physically perfect. Once, once you can't do everything, as long as you embrace what you can do, life, life doesn't get worse. I mean, it just gets better. Mark, I don't know what else to say to that, man. I mean, right there, it's so well said. I've enjoyed every second of you being on this podcast, both of them. Uh, I mean, as transparent as anybody's ever been on this one. Uh, I, I hope you felt this was beneficial for you as well, coming on and kind of sharing your story a little bit. And uh, thanks for being here, sincerely. I, I really appreciate it. I am an open book. I, I, I encourage people. You know, there's things I don't want to talk about publicly, but I'll talk about my, with my friends. Your, your pain is not your own. It can be, and it can be painful forever, or you can, can take, you can take control of your pain and help somebody through their pain. Your depression is not your own unless you want it to be. Then you can be lonely and depressed, or you can turn it into helping somebody else. Everybody listening right now has something to offer that they've been keeping to themselves that they need to share. They don't have to share it on podcast, but they need to share it with a friend who's going through a hard time. So I appreciate the opportunity to, to, to be open. And um, it's, it's therapeutic to me. And sometimes it's the only way to get through hard things is, is by maybe encouraging others to take on similar things and, and help them go through difficult times. And yeah, I've, I've enjoyed it. I can't, I can't thank you enough, Paul. I can't thank you enough. Thanks. Thanks for being here, everybody. Thanks for checking out this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly did. Remember, I'll close this one out as what I always say, and that is your intention matters. Why? Because I'm telling you, that's the result you'll tend to get. We're out of here. We'll do it again next week. And thanks for checking out this episode. Thank you.